Section 9 of Six Years with the Texas Rangers, 1875 to 1881. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andrew Frame. Six Years with the Texas Rangers, 1875 to 1881 by James B. Gillette. Service with Reynolds, the Intrepid, Part 2. We knew the moment we left the creek bed we would be in full view of the potters and the ranch house. We decided then that we would advance on the house as fast as we could run and so be in good position to capture the man who had ridden into the camp. We rose from the creek running. Old man Potter discovered us as we came into view and yelled, Run, Dick, run! Here comes the rangers! We then knew the man we wanted was at the camp. We were so close upon Dublin that he had no time to mount his horse or get his gun, so he made a run for the brush. I was within 25 yards of him when he came from behind the wagon running as fast as a big man could. I ordered him to halt and surrender, but he had heard that call too many times and kept going. Holding my Winchester carbine in my right hand, I fired a shot directly at him as I ran. In a moment, he was out of sight. I hurried to the place where he was last seen and spied him running up a little ravine. I stopped drew a bead on him, and again ordered him to halt. As he ran, Dublin threw his hand back under his coat as though he were attempting to draw a pistol. I fired. My bullet struck the fugitive in the small of the back, just over the right hip bone, and passed out near his right collarbone. It killed him instantly. He was bending over as he ran, and this caused the unusual course of my ball. The boys, whom I had outrun, now joined me, and Carter fired two shots at Dublin after he was down. I ordered him to desist, as the man was dead. I examined the body to make sure it was Dublin, for I knew him intimately, as I had cow-hunted with him before I became a ranger. We found him unarmed, but he had a belt of cartridges around his waist. He was so completely surprised by our sudden appearance he could do nothing but run. The $700 reward on him could never be collected, as it was offered for his arrest and conviction. Dublin's brothers, Roll and Dell, swore vengeance against myself and the Bannister boys, but nothing ever came of the oath. In the month of February 1878, Lieutenant Reynolds started to Austin with five prisoners we had captured in Kimball and Menard counties. They were chained together in pairs. John Stevens, the odd man, was shackled by himself. As a guard for these prisoners, Reynolds had detailed Will and John Bannister, Dave Ligon, Ben Garter, Dick Ware, and myself. On the Junction City and Mason Road, some ten miles east of our camp, was the small ranch of Stark Reynolds, a fugitive from justice, charged with horse-stealing and assault to kill. Company E had scouted for him in Kimball County, and had rounded up his ranch many times. We knew he was in the county, but he always managed to escape us. As we passed this ranch, Lieutenant Reynolds, Privates Ware, Carter, Ligon, and myself were marching in front, with a four-mule wagon following us, in which were the chained prisoners. Behind it came the banisters, who were on guard that day, and detailed to keep a constant watch on the captive outlaws. We passed the Stark Reynolds home about ten o'clock in the morning, and Lieutenant Reynolds remarked that it was hardly worthwhile to round up the house, as he had done so many times in the past without result, but that he would surely like to capture the fellow. We had not ridden for more than half a mile beyond the ranch when we came face to face with Stark himself. He was a small man and riding an exceedingly good brown pony. We were about 400 yards apart and discovered each other at the same instant. 
The outlaw was carrying a small sack of flour in front of him. He immediately threw this down, turned his horse quickly, and made a lightning dash for the Lano Bottoms some three miles away. At that point, the Junction City and Mason Road winds along a range of high mountains, with the country sloping downward to the Lano River. This grade was studded with scrubby live oak and mesquite brush, not thick enough to hide a man, but sufficiently dense to retard his flight through it. We gave chase at once, and for a mile and a half it was the fastest race I ever saw the Rangers run. We were closely bunched the entire distance. With Lieutenant Reynolds, he was riding a fast racehorse, always slightly in the lead. He finally got close enough to the fugitive to demand his surrender. Stark only waved his gun defiantly and redoubled his speed. Lieutenant Reynolds then drew his six-shooter and began firing at the outlaw. After emptying his pistol, he began using his Winchester. The Lano Bottoms were now looming up right in front of us. The race had been fast enough to run every horse into a big limber. Carter, wearing Ligon, dropped out of the race. Up to this time, I had contented myself by trying to keep up with Lieutenant Reynolds, for it's always easier to follow a man through the brush than to run in the lead. I had a good grip on my bridle reins and was trying to steady my pony as best I could. I now saw that the outlaw was beginning to gain on us. I ran up beside the lieutenant and said, He's getting away from us. Must I go after him? Lieutenant Reynolds turned and looked at me with the wildest look on his face I ever saw. His hat was gone. His face was badly scratched by the brush, with blood running down over his white shirt bosom. Yes, goddamn him. Stop or kill him. I changed the bridle reins to my left hand, drew my gun with my right, and digging my spurs deep into my pony's side, I was out of sight of the lieutenant and 300 yards. The fugitive saw that I was alone and that I was going to overhaul him. He suddenly brought his pony to a standstill, jumped down, took shelter behind the animal, and drew a bead on me with his gun. God damn you, stop or I'll kill you, he cried. I tried to obey his order, but my pony was running downhill and ran straight at him for 25 yards more before I could stop. I jumped down from my horse and made ready to fight, but Stark broke for a thicket on foot. As soon as he ran out from behind his pony, I fired at him. The bullet must have come rather close to him, for he quickly turned and took shelter behind his mount again. As he peeped over his saddle at me, I attempted to draw a bead on his head, but I was tired, nervous, and unsteady. Before I could shoot, Dave Ligon galloped right up to the outlaw, ordered him to surrender and drop his gun, which Stark did at once. The boys had heard me shoot, and in five minutes were all upon the scene. The captive was searched and ordered to remount his pony. With one of the boys leading Stark's mount, we started back to the wagon nearly three miles away. As soon as the outlaw was a prisoner, and he knew he would not be harmed no matter what he said, he began a tirade against the rangers. He declared the whole battalion was a set of damned murderers, especially Company E, and said it was curbstone talk in Menard, Mason, and Kimball counties that Lieutenant Reynolds' men would kill a man and then yell for him to throw up his hands. He kept up this running talk until he exhausted Lieutenant Reynolds' patience. The latter then ordered Stark to shut up and declared the speaker was a damned liar, for Company E never killed a man without first giving him a chance to surrender. Lieutenant Reynolds then said with the last old briar breaker captured, he had accomplished the task set him and was now ready to go elsewhere. As we rode along, one of the boys remarked that my pony was limping badly. I wish his leg would come right off up to his shoulder, declared Stark in disgust. If it hadn't been for him, I would have made it to the bottoms and escaped. On approaching the wagon, the prisoner Stevens, a man of some intelligence and humor, stood up and called out to Stark, 
By God, old man, they got you. They rode too many corn-fed horses and carried too many guns for you. I don't know who you are, but I'm sorry for you. While they were chasing you, I got down on my knees here in the wagon, and with my face turned up to the skies, I prayed to the Almighty God that you might get away. Stark was chained to this good-natured liar, and now for the first time, our prisoner seemed to realize his condition. He asked Lieutenant Reynolds to send word to his family that he had been captured. The lieutenant thereupon sent one of the boys to Stark's home to tell Mrs. Reynolds that the rangers would camp on Red Creek for dinner, and if she wished to see her husband, we would be there probably two hours. Presently, Stark's old gray-haired father came to our midday camp. When he saw his son chained, he burst out crying, saying, My son, it's not my fault that you are in this condition. I did my best to give you good advice and tried to raise you right. After dinner, we resumed our march toward Austin. Stark Reynolds was finally turned over to the sheriff of Tarrant County. He was admitted to bail and gave bond, but before he came to trial, he was waylaid and killed, supposedly by relatives of the man he had previously attempted to murder. Early in the spring of 1878, a ranchman living five miles above our camp saw a bunch of Indians on Bear Creek, Kimball County, and at once reported to Lieutenant Reynolds. The Redskins had been seen late in the evening, and by the time a scout could be started after them, it was almost night. The lieutenant, however, followed the trail until it entered a cedar break. It was then too dark to work farther, so the scout returned to camp to make arrangements to resume the trail the following morning. On the march back to camp, the rangers picked up a paint pony with an arrow sticking in its hip. The Indians had probably tried to catch the horse, and failing to do so, had shot it, as was their custom. Just after dark, a runner from Junction City came in and reported a bunch of redskins had been seen near the town stealing horses. It was a beautiful moonlit night, and a close watch was kept on our horses. Just at midnight, John Bannister, an alert man on guard, noticed that one of our pack mules hitched at the end of our picket line was pulling back on its rope and looking over a brush fence that enclosed the camp. With Winchester in hand, Bannister passed through a gate, walked slowly down the fence and into some small underbrush near the mule. Suddenly, a man rose to his feet and fired on Bannister at a distance of not more than ten steps, then broke and ran. Bannister at once opened fire on the Indian. The very first report of a gun brought every man in camp out of his bed. We could see the flashes of Bannister's gun and went to his aid in our nightclothes and barefooted. I ran down by the picket line of horses and jumped the fence where the mule had seen the redskin. By moonlight, I could glimpse the Indian running down the riverbank. I shot at him nine times as he ran, but without effect. Some 200 yards below our camp was a ford on the Lano, and the fugitive was making for it. Just as soon as the Indian reached the crossing and plunged into the river, eight or nine of the rangers that had followed Bannister on the high ground were in a position to shell the swimmer as he crossed. There were probably a hundred shots fired at him, but he finally disappeared in the brush on the south side of the river. Investigation of the place where he crossed showed the timber cut all to pieces, but strange to say, not a shot hit the Indian as far as we ever knew. We found a blanket where the savage had risen and shot at Bannister, and measuring the ground, found that the ranger was just twelve short steps from the Indian when fired upon by the redskin. It was a miracle that Bannister was not killed. The bullet, a forty-five caliber, buried itself in some sacks of corn in a tent just back of him. The next morning we found where ten or twelve Indians had waited under some large pecan trees while this scout slipped up to our camp to investigate and steal a horse. 
The trees were about 400 yards from camp and on the opposite side of the river. Some of the rangers jokingly said those old braves must have thought this lone one stirred up hell at the ranger camp. On account of the range cattle and horses along the Llano River, Lieutenant Reynolds lost some eight or ten hours the next morning before picking up the Indian trail. This gave the Redskins ten or twelve hours start, as they were at our camp just at midnight. The trail passed out west between the north and south Llano Rivers, and followed a rough mountain country that made pursuit difficult and slow. We followed the savages five or six days, and finally abandoned the trail near the head of Devil's River after a heavy rain. While we had been active in rounding up the numerous outlaws and cattle thieves that infested Kimball County, we had not been able to clean up the mystery of the peg-leg stage robbers, which had long baffled the best detectives, sheriffs, and rangers. Pegleg was a small stage station on the San Saba in the midst of a rough and very mountainous country. Here the stage was repeatedly held up, and as repeatedly, the robbers escaped. The scene of the holdup was many times examined, and the parties made determined efforts to trail the bandits, but always without success, for the trail was quickly lost in the rough mountains. One of the features that proved particularly puzzling was the constant recurrence of an exceedingly small footprint at each robbery. These marks were so very small, they convinced many observers that a woman from Fort McCavick or Fort Concho was operating with the bandit gang. Naturally, the rangers were anxious to round up this group of outlaws and put a stop to their depredations. In May 1878, Sergeant Neville made a scout up on the South Llano and captured Bill Allison, a son-in-law of old Jimmy Dublin, father of the bandit Dick Dublin. Allison was wanted on several charges of cattle theft and was taken to Austin for safekeeping. After remaining in the Travis County Jail for nearly a year without being able to give bond, Allison became discouraged. He believed his brothers-in-law, the Dublins, were not aiding him to get bond and became bitter and resentful toward them. This antagonism finally led to the unveiling of the peg-leg mystery. In the spring of 1879, Dick Ware and myself took some prisoners to the Austin jail. Bill Allison saw us and called out to me. He and I had been cowboys together long before I became a ranger. Jim, said Allison, you know I've been cooped up here in this jail for nearly a year. People who ought to be my friends have evidently abandoned me, and I am not going to stand it any longer. I can put the peg-leg stage robbers behind the bars, and I'm going to do it. Ware, who was something of a diplomat, said, Hold on, Bill. If you have anything to confess, we'll get an order from the sheriff to take you to see General Jones so you can talk to him. The general, at once, wrote a note to Dennis Corwin, sheriff of Travis County, and asked that he let Allison accompany us to his office. The sheriff turned his prisoner over to us, and we took him to General Jones, who had a private interview with him for over an hour. What Allison confessed, we did not know, but we returned him to the jail. General Jones moved quickly. For the very next day, a scout of rangers from Company E was sent back to Kimball County. I was just preparing to go west to El Paso with Colonel Baylor, so I missed this last and most important scout back into Kimball County. However, this final expedition was so successful I cannot omit it from a history of the rangers. Arriving at Kimball County, the Company E detail arrested Roll and Dell Dublin, Mac Potter, and Rube Boyce. In the running fight that resulted in their capture, Roll received a bad wound in the hip. The two Dublin brothers and Mac Potter, when arraigned in federal court, pled guilty to stage robbery and were sentenced to 15 years at hard labor. 
During their trial, the mystery of the peg leg robberies was finally cleared up. The Dublin boys were the guiding spirits in the holdups and worked with great cleverness. Old Man Jimmy Dublin's ranch on the South Lano was their headquarters. From the ranch to Pegleg Station on the San Saba was not more than 60 miles across a rough mountainous country. As there were no wire fences in those days, the robbers would ride over to the station, rob the stage, and in one night's ride regain their home. Traveling at night, they were never observed. Dick Dublin, whose death while resisting capture has already been described, was the leader of the bandit gang. Even the mystery of the tiny footprints was disclosed. They were made by Mac Potter, who had an unusually small foot for a man. While Rube Boyce was confined in the Travis County Jail, he made one of the most sensational jail escapes in the criminal annals of Texas. Mrs. Boyce called at the prison with a suit of clean underclothes for her husband. The basket in which she carried them was examined, and she was admitted into the cell of her husband. However, she had hidden a big forty-five Colts revolver about her person and smuggled it in. Rube changed his underwear, put the soiled garments in the basket, and hid the pistol under them. At the end of her visit, Mrs. Boyce started out, and Rube accompanied her down the corridor to the door. Mr. Albert Nichols, the jailer, opened the door with his left hand to let the woman pass out, at the same time holding his pistol in his right hand. As the door swung open, Rube reached into the basket he was carrying for his wife, whipped out the hidden pistol, thrust it into the jailer's face, and ordered him to drop his forty-five and step within the jail. Realizing that a second's hesitation would mean death, Nichols complied and was locked in by the outlaw. Boyce then ran out of the backyard of the jail, mounted a pony that had been hitched there for him, and galloped out of Austin, firing his pistol as he ran. He made a complete getaway. Three or four years later, he was arrested at Socorro, New Mexico, and returned to Austin. At his trial for participation in the peg-leg stage robberies, he was acquitted, and perhaps justly so, for Bill Allison declared to me that Dick Dublin, with his brothers Dell and Roll and Mac Potter, were the real robbers. The arrest and conviction of the Dublins, together with the other men Lieutenant Reynolds had captured or killed, completely cleaned out the stage robbers, cattle and horse thieves, and murderers that had made Kimball County their rendezvous. Today, Kimball County is one of the most prosperous and picturesque counties in the state. Its citizens are law-abiding and energetic. Junction City, the county seat, is a splendid little city of probably 2,500 inhabitants. Forty years ago, the time of which I write, there were no courthouses in Kimball County. The first district courts were hid under the spreading boughs of a large oak tree. The rangers, of which I was frequently one, guarded the prisoners under another tree at a convenient distance from the judge and his attendants. Late in the spring or early summer of 1878, at a session of the County Court of San Saba County, Billy Brown was being prosecuted by County Attorney Brooks for a violation of the prohibition laws. Brown took offense at a remark of the prosecuting attorney and attempted to draw his six-shooter on him. T.J.T. Kendall, a law partner of Brooks, saw Brown's move and quickly whipping out his own pistol, he killed Brown in the courtroom. Then, fearing mob have captured, Kendall fortified himself in a second story of the courthouse and refused to surrender. He held the whole town at bay while his wife administered to his wants. Meantime, he sent a hurry call to the nearest rangers asking for protection against mob violence. Captain Arrington received the message and sent a detachment from Coleman to San Saba to preserve order. General Jones was notified and ordered Lieutenant Reynolds at Junction City to march to San Saba with his company to take charge of Kendall 
and relieve Captain Arrington's men. It was probably two weeks after the killing before Company E reached San Saba, but Mr. Kendall was still holding fort in the upper story of the courthouse. On the arrival of Reynolds' company, Kendall asked the court for a preliminary examination. When court convened, the prisoner waived examination and asked for transference to the Travis County Jail at Austin. The court, realizing the feeling against Kendall, ordered his removal thither. When the time came for Kendall's removal, a hack was driven up to the courthouse door, where a great crowd had assembled to see the prisoner. Jim Brown, sheriff of Lee County, Texas, and brother of Bill Brown, heavily armed, had taken his station within ten feet of the prison door. Just before Mr. Kendall descended the courthouse steps, Lieutenant Reynolds ordered the crowd to fall back fifty feet from the hack. The people immediately obeyed, with the exception of Jim Brown, who sat perfectly still on his horse. The lieutenant looked at Brown for a minute, then turned to his rangers and ordered them to draw their guns and move everyone fifty yards from the courthouse. Like a flash, every ranger drew his gun, dismounted, and waved the crowd back. Brown turned to Reynolds and said, I am going to Austin with you. If you do, you will go in irons. Move back. Brown, who had killed several men, slowly turned his horse and rode away. He did not know the man with whom he was dealing. Lawyer Kendall was thereupon carried to Austin without incident. When we reached Austin, Jim Brown met Lieutenant Reynolds on the street and apologized for the way he had acted at San Saba. He said he fully intended to kill Kendall as he approached the hack, but the presence of so many rangers caused him to change his mind. Lieutenant Reynolds declared he was anticipating just such a move and had instructed his men to shoot Brown into doll rags at his first move. Soon after this, Lieutenant Reynolds moved Company E down on the San Saba in a beautiful pecan grove, an ideal summer camp, about two miles from the town of San Saba. From this point, we scouted all over Lano, Lampasas, Burnett, and San Saba counties at our favorite pursuit of rounding up bad men. It was from this camp that we made our sensational ride to Round Rock after Sam Bass, the notorious train robber. End of section 9